Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Well, what makes a disease a disease? That is, what, what defines a disease? Have you ever thought about that? How can we sure we're actually sick if the definitions of diseases keep changing? Which, by the way, they do. <laughs> Does what ails us depend on who we are and where we live? Indeed, when we live. The answer you'll find out is actually yes. Perhaps it even depends on our gender. Those and many, many other intriguing questions are asked and answered by science writer Mike McRae in his new book called Unwell. Mike, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much. It does seem like, a, a, at, the, at the surface, a, a very odd question. What is a disease? But, yeah, what is a disease? It's, it's a harder question than might first appear. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're quite used to um, going to the doctor and getting a diagnosis, and they give you know they look at some numbers and say, "Well, you're on this side of the line. Um, you know, here is your label. You now have um, you have cancer. You have ADD. You've got measles. You know, you've got a thing, and we'll try to take that thing away from you, and we'll return you to a state of normality." So we, we think about diseases as a dichotomy: you're either healthy or you're broken in some way. But the reality is it's a lot fuzzier than that. You know, disease is something that is very hard to pin down. Um, and when you start asking questions about what makes one thing a disease, whereas something else is just suffering that you, are, you, know, you have to deal with, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a lot of deep philosophy behind that that I think sometimes we need to pay attention. So our, our idea about condition morphs over time, new diseases appear, old diseases disappear. Um, there's a fascinating one. Um, about Americanitis. That's right, yes, which is a cheeky word for a term that they call neurasthenia. So for a good century or so, it was pretty much one of the most common diagnoses you could get. You go to the doctor and pretty much whatever ailed you, it would probably be neurasthenia. What years are we talking about? uh, 19th century is really where, so towards the beginning of the 20th century. But it was still actually considered a bona fide diagnosis as far as the mid 20th century. So, you know, you can't go to Medicare these days and claim it, but, you know, if you go back <laughs> half a century, you, you might have been in with a chance. Um, and it pretty much defined nearly anything that ailed you. You know, if you were tired, if you're cranky, if you were impotent, if you were not eating. And what it was is it was a general depletion of nervous energy. So there was this idea that your nervous system sort of, you know, was based on a certain amount of energy. It was like there was so much power in it. And when you're, you're born, and then over time it depletes. Mm. And you need to try to put more back into it. And it was blamed on just the, the everyday buzz of, of, of modern life. You know, we live in a modern, in a busy modern world. And there was this idea that things used to be simpler. And so your, your nervous energy wouldn't drain away quite as quickly. Um, and so it's just a pining for the good old days. And we still do that. We don't call it a disease, but there's still that sense that, wow, well, maybe people are just tired because of the modern way of living. Would we so, call yeah, it nostalgia we, today or something like that? Well, nostalgia is actually a little bit different. So nostalgia actually used to be a, a disease that could kill you as well. I mean, that used to be <laughs> something quite serious. Really? Um, oh, absolutely. You go back a, a couple of centuries and, um, and nostalgia was considered um, something that could actually affect your organs to the point that you could die. So there's an entry in the diary of Joseph Banks, you know, the botanist who came down to Australia, and, um, and he spoke about uh, nostalgia as this diabolical, you know, this devilish disease. Um, so it was a serious thing. It wasn't just homesickness and wishing you still had mum's lamb roast. This was something that if you were a soldier in a Swiss army you know, far away from home, pining for 
it was taken seriously as something that could kill you. But again, it was very much a historical context because back then talking about these things, it was in a context of looking at the concept of memory as pathological. There were things that you could be thinking in your head memory-wise that could actually make you quite sick. And so, you know, French doctors back in the 1800s and 1700s were considering this concept of nostalgia as being quite serious. But again, we, you know, that's changed. We don't have neurasthenia and we don't have nostalgia anymore, even though we've still got aspects of suffering that are similar. So there are attempts to try to look at how people feel bad and say, well, what's causing it? Yes. How do we yes. prog- how do we give a prognosis? What's yes. going to happen to you later? Yes. And we still try to do that. We'll call them different things now, perhaps, though, won't we? We might call that serious mental illness or chronic depression or words like that because, again, our, our understanding of the physiology has changed and we can therefore drill down and narrow down and redefine what we know about what's going on and give it a name. That's right. So, you know, we've now got more observations. Hmm. You know, we've got more empirical evidence, but it still has to fit into a model. And that empirical evidence is still going to be things like, well, what are your hormone balances like? Or what is your, um, you know, what are your, your neurological pathways like? And we still try to link it in with an experience. And that can be a positive thing, you know, because it does give you prognosis. It gives us something that we can base a prediction on. But it still exists within this model. And the central model that we have at the moment, the disease model, still kind of has this line. And it says on this side of the line, it's just normal variation. You're just different. On the other side of the line, well, it's deficient and broken in some way. And as a social species, we, we sort of use these stories, you know, these models to, to make sense of things about ourselves. We identify with it. Mm. And there's a lot of identity wrapped up in disease. You know, when someone says, well, you have chronic depression, what do you do with that information? You know, how, do you, how do you interpret it? So there are deep complexities to, to what we do with these things. There's a lot of positives to this disease model. But what I argue in my book is there's also limits to it. And I think being aware of what those limitations are will help, help us get to a new model in the future that can actually use suffering a lot better. Gosh, that's interesting. Our guest on Open House is Mike McRae. He's the author of Unwell. The subtitle is What Makes a Disease a Disease. And, and um, you're a science educator. Look, I, um, I want to come back to the question then. Well, what is a disease? Give me the definition of what disease is. I can give you two answers. One is much more flippant than the other. <laughs> the, I'll start with the flippant one first, and that is an authority. So, you know, it will be a medical authority of some sort. Uh, the World Health Organization is a classic example. So they come out with every now and then a big book, the um, International Classification of Diseases, yep. uh, ICD for, for short. And uh, they've just come out with their 11th edition or draft of their 11th edition. And it's got a whole lot of diseases and conditions and anything that ails you is in there. And it's got a code. And it's all broken down. And it's a consensus. It says, look, we're all on the same page here. These things are diseases. If it's not in here, then there's no consensus. So with the World Health Organization um, or you know, in the case of the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual, you know, the DSM, which is for psychological health, uh, the American Psychiatric Association. So they will be going through the literature, having conversations, making decisions, but they still do so on some sort of fundamental philosophy. You know, there's three things they, they would probably look for. First of all, is it considered some sort of abnormality and formal function. Yep. So is it different in some way? Right. And you know, is it different on a physiological basis? The second thing they might look for is, does it prevent you from fulfilling some sort of social expectation or responsibility? Yes. So you're different, and then you're not meeting something that society says is important. Maybe you're not working, you know, and that's an important thing in some communities. Maybe you're not making babies. You know, that's a responsibility in some societies. So you're not meeting an obligation. 
Um, that could also be you're sitting and talking to yourself on the bus. People don't want that in a community. You're not fulfilling your your obligation mm. to look normal. Mm-hmm. So people get stressed and they go, oh, I don't like, well, that's All right, but that, So it really has to do with uh, some sort of adverse effect on... Um, on your well-being and mm-hmm. all the well-being of others. These are the sorts of ideas, which means that right. when we move beyond, well, okay, which means that it's bound up in a lot of cultural understandings about what normal is, I suppose. It is, but then mm. there's the third criteria, yep. which is the real kicker, and that is blame. Are you responsible? So if you're not meeting that responsibility, you know, <laughs> imagine this, you, you have a few drinks one night, you get up the next morning, you're over, you can't go to work. Well, that's criteria one and two, Ted. But is it an illness or did you kind of do that to yourself? Right. So that idea of drawing the line there is is also a cultural thing, yes. which is why throughout history it's changed. And it's also why in different communities around the world, you'll have some things that will be considered diseases as well. So there's this push and pull in cultures around the world that sort of makes some things a condition in one area and not in another. Can you give us an example of that, Mike? Yep, absolutely. So uh, one example I can give is in Japan, there's something called hikokomori, meaning to, to pull within, to pull away. And it describes a, uh, a psychological condition in Japan where you'll get people who will be recluses. So they'll pull away from society, they'll, um, okay. they'll work from home, they'll very rarely leave their house. Or Would we call this agoraphobia, in. perhaps? Well, this is the interesting thing, is you try to make parallels between different societies. Yes, you do, and you? Can, yeah, and we can find overlaps, but it's not quite the same thing. It's a very particular condition that you, know, that you will find in, in Japan. Mm. Um, and so the question then becomes, well, what's the context for Japan? Is it the fact that only Japanese people or only Japanese society actually has this condition? Um, or is it simply that they're identifying certain characteristics in a cultural setting? And, you know, if you went to another country, well, you, you wouldn't quite have the same cultural um, connection there with that. Um, and it's a hard thing. It's not something you can pin down very easily. Um, I mean, in the West, for instance, we've had eating disorders for a very long time. However, there's a trend in what is being, you know, what causes eating disorders. So if you go far enough back, and it was very much a religious-based thing. So you would have these, uh, this documentation throughout the literature of individuals with uh, long periods of fasting, what we might recognize now as being something like anorexia, but it was very much a, a sign of devotion. So, you know, you would be devoted to your faith, and they'd go, mm. oh, that's a bit excess, that. Mm. Um, but there's no sign of, of an eating disorder uh, that was connected with body dysmorphias or looking at trying to change your body to suit an ideal. That didn't come up until about the you know, early to mid 20th century. But you also then go to the East, and it wasn't until about the 1990s did they start to see this great big surge in um, young people and adolescents also experiencing eating disorders for that same thing. So it didn't exist before. So that's very much a cultural push. So, you know, the culture around you makes you try to identify <laughs> suffering in different ways, and it may affect people in different ways. Well, I, someone wrote, look, yep. the culture is making me sick. Oh, absolutely. You know, so there's a cultural context for these things, that either it's making you sick directly or we're trying to understand yeah. illness in a cultural setting. So there, some of these things are called culture-bound illnesses that you know, are very particular to a particular society. Uh, but then you've also got your value sets that change as well. So you know, for a you know, very long time, we had um, this, this disease called hysteria. You know, we use the term now to describe um, somebody who may be behaving in, in an overly emotional way. But for centuries, it was a condition that we would um, 
diagnose women with because women weren't behaving in a manner that we would expect of them. So there's that cultural value again that says, you know, women are supposed to be quiet and demure and behave responsibly and, you know, be in charge of the household, etc. But if they then rise up in some way or are emotional or speaking above their place, well, is it their fault? Or is it their body? And well, we blame their body. For a very long time, we'd blame the uterus. We'd say the uterus is sort of not quite sitting where it should be. And so anatomists sort of, when they'd open bodies, would find body organs not quite sitting where they expected. And so this idea that body parts could float through the body became a big thing in ancient Greece. And that influenced centuries of medical thought. And, um, you know, the, the treatment was often put that uterus back in place. And that was either put a baby in it and then it would settle down. Um, or, especially in the 19th century, they started seeing it as a, well, maybe you need to actually coax it back in place through spasms or paroxysms. Mike McRae is with us, the author of Unwell uh, and the Definitions of Disease. We, we've, we've roamed into the cultural, and you mentioned the religious. So let's, let's go directly there. Yep. Um, because... Classic theology, Christian theology, would have it that disease is in the world because of sin, because we live in a fallen world, and that it's a consequence um, of us walking away from God, as it were, as as a human race, and and therefore that it's possible for God to heal people. But there's also the sense that all will be made new, and another classic piece of theology, that all will be made new, and in the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be disease. Now, that's, that's um, interesting relating to what you said earlier about a definitional idea of disease is that, uh, or, or a question around disease is whether you are blameworthy. Did you cause it yourself? That's right. So in trying to understand um, why suffering exists, it's a big thing in religion. Like, mm. you know, why, do, why are there bad things in this world, especially if, if God is benevolent or God loves us, why are bad things there? And so we try to understand uh, where disease fits in that. You know, why do we feel bad sometimes? And there's, there's two sources for that. One is it's the external. It's the universe and the way it is. Something bad happened once or there was a decision made once or that's just the way the universe is made. And it affects us. So then we're not saying you know, it's your fault. We're saying it belongs to something else. Or we say it's your sin. You did something bad. Mm. And theology is full of examples that push and pull there again of saying, <clears throat> is it a responsibility you have? Have you sinned or have you done something? Therefore, you must atone. You mm. can actually mm. change. Mm. Um, or can you then use the community? And so when you've got an external source, the community is willing to actually um, invest charity in you. You know, there is a, a communal of impact that kind of says we all pull together and we'll then actually ease the suffering. But when it's you and you've made the decision, well, you have to atone. You know, you have to then make a decision yourself. Now, that all, you know, it's all theology and in the history, but we've got a very similar thing in medicine. There's still that thing of like, is it just the, the fact that evolution has brought these things upon us? Are we just, you know, is it just nature? In which case, once again, the community will come together and impose charity. So, you know, we'll have government resources, we'll have, um, you know, investment of, uh, of research bodies that have actually got money through charities and stuff. Hmm. And you will benefit from that because that's just the way the, the universe is and we'll try to fix it. However, we then draw a line and we'll say, well, is it your sin? Have you done something wrong? In which case, you don't get that same charity. You don't get that same help. 
And we can see that in the effect of things like even just the, uh, the amount of funding that is given towards um, lung cancer versus yes, breast cancer. Yes, absolutely right. And these questions <clears throat> are key policy drivers. Uh, do you That's invest right. more at the start of life, keeping uh, neonates alive, uh, knowing that they may indeed have problems later in life, which costs the, you know, or do you, and how much do you spend at the end of life to keep people alive? Given mm. that there are finite resources, do you flip that equation? Uh, and again, do you, do you, um, withdraw assistance to people who've contributed to their own condition by smoking or drinking or drug taking? Really important moral questions. And Absolutely. The, part of the IVF answer, I mean, a as big... a human, you'd want to say kind of, yeah, we ought to express compassion towards everybody. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, one big um, issue that's, that's going to be growing further in the future is a question of fertility and IVF. Absolutely. So who, who deserves access? So if you have, you know, in vitro fertilization initially coming up as, um, you know, we're going to fix something in nature. Mm. There are some people who can't have babies because their bodies just don't allow that. And we're going to overcome that hurdle by offering IVF. But then if you have a decision where you go, well, I'm now in my 30s and you know, approaching 40, um, and as a woman, I want to have a, a child. Um, I didn't have a child earlier in life. And people go, well, that was your decision. Mm. But then you've also got the question of like, well, what structures does society impose to say it's easier for you to have a career and then have a child later mm. rather than having one earlier? And so there's a lot of this push and pull of, of morality that underpins it. And what we think of as being very purely a medical thing has these values that that sort of drive our decisions. Ultimately, in the end, I I don't want to be saying what the right and wrong answers are, but I think having in mind that these are questions that underpin how we do medicine and how we treat health is vital if we're going to get any reasonable answers at all. Yeah, so the ethicists would say, yep, you've got to do both. You've got to have... Uh, the scientific medical knowledge, in fact, pure research is good because it kind of pushes back the boundaries of what we don't know. And then you've got to have the moral argument. You've got to have the ethical argument. And you need a, a framework within which to have those conversations. And I think from a Christian perspective, you know, that that's one of the key things that we, we need to uh, keep keep talking through as a, as a community. Where does it end up, Mike? Does it end up in a place where, um, and we've discussed this on the program a couple of times, now that we know more about genetics, and we're really just starting out on that journey, genomics or whatever it's called now, do we say, well, we won't provide insurance for this person because, you know, at, from the age, from the time they're born or even prenatally, we know they're going to have XYZ condition because we can see it in their DNA. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's diverse philosophical frameworks we can be using for all of these that aren't there. I mean, one of them is purely economical, and that's simply going to say, well, it's all a balance of numbers. And when you're running a government, that's an important thing. You've got a budget to balance. You know, you've only got, you've got to satisfy the needs of the community. You know, so do you take a utilitarian approach? Do you kind of say, well, it's the, uh, the greatest good for the greatest number, and let's look at these numbers and crunch them? Um, and, you know, by some frameworks, that, that might be the way you need to do it. Um, but then you have to remember that on the other end, the average citizen is not balancing budgets. You know, they're not looking at the, the greater good. They're looking at their own personal suffering. Yeah. And so you get this division that happens there, and you've got a whole lot of people that says, well, I don't trust the authority. You know, they don't have my interests at stake. They've got the greater numbers at stake, but I'm not part of the majority. You know, my condition could be different, or I don't, you know, I don't look like what people actually value in this society. So for a very long time, we'd have minorities such as, you know, people of diverse sexualities, 
who would be pathologized, who wouldn't be considered part of the norm, um, you know, sitting on the fringe and being excluded. And we've still got many examples of that in, in today's world. And so we've got questions there of like, how does that fit into healthcare? If you're, per, you know, if you're a transgender male or woman and you sort of go, well, how do I access healthcare to help me? And you have the rest of the community say, you don't fit into these models. You're not part of the majority. Yep. Well, where do you sit? Yep. Now, again, there's no easy answers to all of those things because they are different philosophical constructs. But what we've got to not do is pretend it's all the same thing and actually start separating being honest. So quite often you'll have politicians who will kind of say, well, I represent all Australians. No, you don't. You represent a budget. <laughs> you need to. Like, you know, no one can blame you because that's kind of what you're doing. But you can't have it both ways. And by the same token, I think you need individuals to kind of go, well, there is a reality. How do I deal with that? How do I deal with limited resources in this world? How do we allocate? So actually having a philosophical conversation that has that charity in it to say, we're not going to be talking about the same sort of things here. We're going to be talking about different things. But we need to find common ground. You know, we do need to have individuals having access to health care, even if they're not part of the majority. We need to have stories being told. So people say, well, I want you to feel sympathy for my position. Um, we need the science to come into it and actually say, well, we need to make decent prognoses. We need to be able to identify and diagnose um, on a predictable scale. And all of these things can all fit together in, in one system. That's not perfect, but is, you know, at least progresses forward. I'm optimistic. I think we can get there. I think we do have a future where disease is slowly going to become understood uh, in a context. Personalised medicine is becoming a big thing, so we'll slowly get to the point where you know, it will be about your genome. We will be looking at it and saying, well, what are the chances here? You know, what, can, uh, what can we understand about your unique individual physiology? Tell me about your life. You know, tell me about it. it all comes together. The problem between getting to that point from where we are now, is getting that social structure right. Interesting conversation. Thank you so much for the book, and thanks for speaking with us on Open House. Lovely. Thanks for the time. Mike McRae, University of Queensland Press, is the publisher of that book called Unwell, What Makes a Disease a Disease. Mike McRae is a science communicator and, um, and, and a really good communicator at that. It's interesting, isn't it, to think about that from also a spiritual perspective. In some in some ways, you know, it's one of the oldest questions of, of all. Uh, did Job sin is the question. That That's a puzzling book, and that's a puzzling question. Did What was Job's sin then, that all of these things happened to him? Even the disciples asked the same question of Jesus about a blind man. Who sinned? Was it this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And the answer to all of those, if you take it in the kind of global uh, kingdom perspective is that at the end of the day there is sin in the world we are in a fallen world and that's that's one of the causes of this kind of sickness um, and what we need to do is to trust God in the middle of all of that 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 question about the blind man leads on to Jesus healing the blind man this is in John you can read it in chapter 9 he heals the blind man he does it on the Sabbath the religious leaders of the day get get upset with Jesus that sits in train a whole series of events and you know the end of all of that but the point is still made by just these wonderful lessons that come out of the bible when you view it as a whole book of literature that they were so worried about him healing on the sabbath they didn't look at the fact that he'd healed someone which was a great outcome 
Because we can point our fingers at those Pharisees and say, oh, tut, tut, weren't they terrible? They were so religious, those people. They couldn't see the big picture. Hello. I think I heard something about a moat and a speck in there somewhere. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.